Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thanks for joining us, and I hope that this episode, as always, will enrich your walk with Christ, will increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I also hope that I manage to be at least a little bit entertaining as we go. So, we uh, at Asbury are now, um, I believe, four days in, maybe five days in. No, I'm sorry, I've got my math way off. We're three days in. (laughs) We're three days into our new Bible reading plan, which is a 60-day read-through of Paul's letters. Um, now that means that's not all of the epistles of the New Testament because Paul did not write all of them, um, but it is um, the ones that that are written by Paul, including uh, several of them where there might be some dispute over whether or not Paul wrote them. Now I personally am inclined to believe that Paul wrote all the letters that that traditionally have been attributed to him, and there are lots of reasons why I think that's the case. Um, most of them boil down to the fact that I just find all the, the reasons why people say they are not Paul's letters to be just wildly unconvincing. Um, they all boil down to, well, this one just doesn't sound like some of the other ones that Paul wrote. And, and I think anybody who has spent any significant amount of time writing, and especially writing letters, would know that um, you can sound different at different times in your life, depending on what's going on around you. And uh, and, and where you are in your heart and soul. And we know for a fact that there were a few major events in Paul's ministry that were quite traumatic and that really shook him. And uh, it makes perfect sense that these would change the tone and tenor of some of his letters. And so um, so anyway, that was a long digression because this podcast is not an overview of the reading plan. It is about the book of Romans, uh, which is the first book in the reading plan. So this this is not like a one of those ones where we read them in chronological order. We are reading them just in the order that they are in 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 the New Testament for simplicity's sake. And so we start off with Romans. Now, if you are behind on that reading plan, this is Wednesday, April the twelfth. Uh, today's chapter was Romans chapter four. So if you're behind and you're listening to this on the day we read, just read Romans chapter four and you're caught up. If you listen tomorrow on Thursday the thirteenth, read Romans chapter five and you're caught up. And then after that. We have several days of two chapters a day. Um, so the easiest way to do this is just to go and, and get the reading plan. Now, it's been shared on our church Facebook page. You can also just find it in the Version app. It is simply titled Paul's Letters, and it is the Bible Project version of this reading plan. Um, and you can you know, set the start date for um, Monday, April the 10th, and just catch up. Um, Highly, highly encourage you to do that. I, I always love it when as many of our people as possible are not only reading the Bible together, but reading the same parts of the Bible at the same time. My podcasts for the next two months are going to be based on what we are reading in that reading plan, as well as my sermons. So do yourself a favor and go do that. Now, we are in Romans. And because this is a 60-day reading plan through a large swath of the New Testament, um, we are going to be unfortunately limited in how much time we can spend in each of these books. Romans is, uh, a, a, it's a book you could spend, I mean, you could spend two months reading through and studying and preaching on the book of Romans 
and still have more to do. It, it is such a dense, dense letter. Um, and so here we are, and we are, sorry, I need to adjust my mic a little bit, and we are going to be <laughs> doing one podcast and one sermon on Romans, um, which means you, dear friends, have the responsibility of doing any deeper dives on your own. Um, and you absolutely should. You should never confine your studies of the Bible to what I do on Sunday morning and what I do midweek. You should always, always, always be spending a great deal of time in Scripture and with Scripture and reading about Scripture. Um, and if you want to... Um, if you want to read some things about Romans, if you really want to, to study Romans in depth, um, let me just commend to you the work of N.T. Wright, who many of you will know is um, one of, not one of, he, he is far and away my, my favorite theologian to read. Um, and to, he just, I, I just have found his work to be extremely helpful. And he is, uh, uh, among many other things, he is, he is an expert on Paul and Paul's letters. And there's really, I, I doubt anyone better to help you understand Paul and his letters. And there's two particular books, if you want, where you can, that would allow you to dive into that. One is simply titled Paul, a biography, which will help you understand Paul. If you want to do like a really, really intense, deep, academic dive into Paul's letters, um, his work, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, is an enormous, I mean, it's effectively a seminary textbook. Um, but that would, that would really, I mean, I'm actually reading through it right now, and, and it will do a, a wonderful job of helping you kind of understand what Paul is saying and what Paul is doing. Um, but uh, his biography of Paul is much more approachable and much more accessible. Um, you, there's also just a few other things he's written that would be good for you to, to read through um, in terms of helping you understand Paul's letters. I don't think he's actually written a commentary on Romans specifically, which is kind of surprising. Um, he's got a few other commentaries out there. Um, but you, well, actually, I take that back because you can look up. He's got a, a a series called the New Testament for Everyone, and they are short little commentaries. And uh, there would be one on Romans that he's written. That would be probably one of the best and most easily accessible commentaries on the Book of Romans that you could find. So look up N.T. Wright, the New Testament for Everyone, and find the Romans commentary. You'll also find, of course. Um, commentaries in that series on all of Paul's letters. And, and so uh, you might want to check that out. So that's N.T. Wright, The New Testament for Everyone. They're relatively affordable Bible commentaries, and you can just buy them one at a time on the letters you're reading. And I'm going to make one more commentary recommendation. There is a series of commentaries edited by the late, great Thomas Oden, who was a Methodist pastor and scholar. Uh, it's called The Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. And all it is, is it is a sort of, it's, it's a combined resource. And what they've done is they've gone through 
the writings of ancient Christians, the early church fathers, the, the, the leaders of the church in its earliest days, and they looked through their writings on all of the books of the Bible and compiled them into commentaries. And so they've basically taken the works of, um, of all these leaders of the early church and, dis- and made them into a series of commentaries on the entire Bible so that you can go through and you can read what, um, what the early church was teaching on the entire body of scripture. And there is, so it's a massive commentary. It's like 29 volumes. So, um, you know, you may not need the whole thing or you may not want to buy the whole thing right away, but you can go out and buy the one on Romans, which is interesting. So having said all of that and, and made some recommendations, I want to talk to you a little bit about the letter to the Romans. Now, this is Paul's magnum opus. It's, this is his greatest work. It's probably the last letter he wrote. He writes this. Now, his plan, which never, which as far as we can tell, at least never really comes to fruition. Um, his plan is to eventually travel all the way to Spain as a missionary to the Christians in Spain. Or maybe, maybe not to the Christians in, not to the Christians in Spain, but he wants to go and begin evangelizing the people of Spain. Which for for Paul and for his followers is I mean that is the edge of the world. Literally, it is where the world stops because beyond Spain there's nothing but open ocean. Um, now there is some indication, which is really fascinating to me, that the Romans and the Egyptians and a few and the Phoenicians and a few other seafaring civilizations had actually been visiting the New World regularly. And in ancient times, um, there are Roman coins that have been dug up in, in uh, both in the U.S. and I think in some places in South America that were found deep enough that they could not possibly have been just like lost by some modern collector. They had to have been um, relatively new when they fell into the dirt there. Uh, there. There's all kinds of really fascinating evidence that these ancient civilizations were actually in relatively regular contact with the with the new world but it does not seem as though that's common knowledge in Paul's day um, and so for them Spain appears to be the edge of the world he wants to go there that's as far as he can conceive of going and he wants to stop in Rome on the way and, and largely because um, he's going to need a break. It's a long journey from where he is to uh, to Spain. And so he's going to need to stop. He'll, he'll stop in Rome. He'll rest. He'll be refreshed. He'll get to spend some time with the church in Rome, which he's never been able to visit in person. Uh, that's obviously something that's very important to him. Um, and then he'll move on. Now, as we know, he does end up visiting Rome, but he dies in Rome. He's executed in Rome. Um, but this letter to the Romans is all about uh, it's all about really explaining to them a couple of key points. One, he's really trying to explain a lot of um, uh, like a lot of just Christian theology, if you can call it that. 
what he wants to do, there's, there's a couple points he wants to do. One, he's trying to make sure that the Gentile and Jewish Christians in Rome understand that they are one in Christ. This is a really important point for him, and it's an important point throughout all of his letters, but he's he is going to emphasize it here. And he's going to go to great lengths to explain uh, first to the Jewish Christians how um, how their faith, how their law in the Torah, how their identity as Israel has been summed up and fulfilled in Jesus. And he's going to go to great lengths to explain to the Gentiles that they aren't better than the Jews. They've been grafted onto Israel's family tree, and so they are now one with the Jews. And that's part of Romans. It's a big part. But I want to talk, because I'm going to preach on Sunday morning on, on Romans, I'm going to talk really specifically about the idea of election. Because that's something that pops up in Romans, and particularly people like to use Romans like especially 9 through 11, but there's lots of it that they'll use, uh, to talk about Paul's theology of election. And this is so fundamentally misinterpreted and misunderstood that we have to address it. So first off, let's understand something. Paul's theology of election is a fundamentally Jewish theology of election. That means, uh, and let, let's pause for a minute here. This is something that Calvin completely failed to understand. It's a monumental mistake on his part. And modern Calvinists and most Reformed theologians fall into the same trap. They completely miss what Paul is talking about because they, they utterly fail to understand that Paul is a Jew, and he's thinking in a manner that is Jewish. And so when Paul speaks about election, it is flat out objectively incorrect to interpret that as a statement about our salvation. And yet that's what Calvin does, that's what most uh, sort of the sort of neo-Calvinists and the Reformed theologians do today. Um, so a lot of the evangelical church, a lot of the big non-denominational churches, a lot of the big theologians that they lean to, people like, uh, so we won't go into names, but um, they are objectively wrong. This isn't an opinion, this is pure fact, because they have interpreted this theology of election as being something that is about salvation, which then leads to this theology of predestination that God chooses who will be saved, and by implication, therefore, who will be damned. And that creates all sorts of other problems. Because if you do that, well, then that makes God responsible for all evil in the world. Now, they will say that's not true. They will say, no, sorry, you can't pin that on God. But they don't actually have a leg to stand on. Once you open the doors to predestination and say that God is the one who chooses who to save and who not to save, that God is the one who predetermines everything in creation, which is the core of the theology of predestination, you are then saying that God is responsible for everything. And there are also, of course, there's also the huge, huge, huge moral problem of saying that God created some people just to damn them to hell, never gave them a chance. Once you remove human agency, once you remove free will from the equation, God becomes a monster. 
And it's a huge problem. Now, to be clear, John Wesley did not see things that way. John Wesley's idea about uh, about all this is that we, we do lose free will to sin. Our sin rules over us so completely we no longer have free will, but God's grace, God's prevenient grace or his preceding grace or his preventing grace, he called it all three of those things, but it's the same thing. The grace that goes before is constantly at work in the world to counter the effects of sin and give us back our free will. Which means that our free will is an act of grace in God, but God nonetheless gives us the freedom now to reject sin and choose God. So Wesley Wesley always rejected this idea of predestination. Even if he didn't necessarily always get Paul totally correct, and uh, but that's a story for another day. Um, so, when Paul, so one more word here, right? It, it, it is not possible. It is not logically, reasonably, theologically possible to reconcile the doctrine of predestination with the character of a good and loving God. And fortunately, it's not necessary to try because, as I'm about to show you, there is no biblical basis whatsoever for the doctrine of predestination. It has no scriptural support. So let's talk about Jewish election theology. Jewish election theology was not about salvation in the sense that we usually mean it. It was about God choosing the people of Israel to be the instruments of salvation for the rest of the world. It was not about what God did for Israel, in other words. It was about what God wanted Israel to do for the rest of humanity. This is a huge distinction, and it's really important to understand this and to, and to internalize it. Election is not about what God does for, for us. It's not about being saved from the world. It's not about God choosing to pull us out of sin and evil. Election is, is about our God-given purpose in the world. So for Paul, this means that Jesus, who embodied and represented all of Israel, Jesus is the embodiment, the divine representative of all Israel. He is the one in whom Israel's election is fulfilled. Israel's purpose as Abraham's descendants, Israel's purpose is to be the people through whom God will save the world. That purpose is fulfilled in Jesus. And so now, if we Christians who are in Christ, in Paul's words, are God's elect, that means we are now to be God's instruments for salvation for the rest of the world. So, in other words, election is not about God choosing to save us out of this world. It is about God choosing the family of Abraham as the people through whom he will save the world. All who have faith in God are now part of Abraham's family. This is something that Paul, that Paul takes great pains to explain in the book of Romans, that, that we are now part of Abraham's family, right? Abraham was justified by faith, not by the law, because Abraham, of course, existed before the law. 
Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness even before he was circumcised, right? So all of the things, so Paul is going back and saying, look, all these things that we have said are absolutely necessary to be counted as righteous. Abraham was counted as righteous without them. And that means, therefore, that Gentile converts to Christianity can, like Abraham, be counted as righteous through faith. And here's the important bit. This talk of righteousness has nothing to do with our character. It has to do with our status in God's covenant. If we're counted as righteous, that means we are included in God's covenant. Now, what covenant are we talking about? Well, the covenant God made with Abraham. This is the original covenant. Now, it's modified with each passing generation. It's modified for the people of Israel. It's modified through Jesus. But, but all along, God is working to fulfill the covenant he made with Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, now, because the boundaries of the covenant have been redefined around Jesus, and all who have faith in Jesus, no matter their ethnic background, can be part of the family of Abraham. Now, truly, through Abraham, all the nations of the earth are welcome to be part of God's covenant and are welcome to be blessed by God. So when Paul says that we are God's elect, he means that we are now counted as Abraham's descendants. We have been grafted on to the family tree. And he means that therefore, God, if we are part of Abraham's family tree, if we are his descendants, God intends to work through us to bring his order, wisdom, and love into every corner of the world. Now this is important because when we misread Romans in the way that Calvin and his followers do, even today, we end up with a theology that makes our faith all about us and all about leaving this world and this life behind. Salvation is a personal and private thing. It's just a matter of believing the right stuff and waiting until you get saved and carried off into heaven. And the problem is you won't find any support for that anywhere in the Bible if you actually read what it actually says which Calvinists don't. And when we misread Romans in that way, it denies human agency altogether, which means that actually our choices in this life wouldn't matter. And again, we see all throughout the Bible that human choices, human decisions, quite clearly do matter. So you have this whole system of belief that is based on a misreading of Romans that then has to misread the entire Bible as a result. Because Paul is not saying and never says that we are saved from the world. He is saying that we are saved for the world. Following Jesus is about becoming God's instrument. Living your life in such a way that God can use you to bring light into the darkness. To begin the work of bringing about the new creation that he has promised. The fundamental problem is that when Adam sinned, 
chaos, and death were introduced into God's good creation. And the sin of idolatry, the fundamental sin, introduces destructive evil forces into the world. And so the story of the Bible is the story of God countering chaos and death, combating the evil force of sin. Abraham and his family are God's solution, which culminates in Jesus. And this is also, just as a side note, this is why Paul can say that the Torah has been fulfilled, that the Torah served its purpose, that the Torah was not wrong. Because the Torah's purpose, in a dark and mysterious way, the Torah's purpose was to lay a trap for sin. The purpose of the Torah, which obviously failed to justify the people of Israel. In this dark and mysterious way, the purpose of the Torah is to draw out sin. To draw sin onto the people of Israel, onto God's chosen people, so that God could judge and condemn and defeat it in the person of Jesus. In the Torah, by giving it to the people of Israel, God lays a trap for sin. Paul does not treat sin as a pattern of behavior or a breaking of the rules. He treats it as an active, evil, inhuman force. This is what he's getting at when he says things like, um, for I know the good I ought to do, but I don't do the good thing I know that I ought to do. I do what I don't want to do. He's talking about the, the power that sin has over us to compel us to do things we know are wrong. And you'll notice as well, when he talks about, about the work of Jesus on the cross, he talks about God condemning sin on the cross, not condemning Jesus. It's the sin which is condemned. Because God has drawn out the sin of the world using the people of God, using the people of Israel under the law of Torah as a lure. There is something about the Torah and, its, and, the, and the, the function of Torah in the life of the people of Israel which, which allows the full measure of sin to be revealed. It allows us to see how, how evil and destructive and insidious sin really is. And this culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus. That is sin at the height of its power, nailing Jesus to the cross. And on the cross, God condemns sin. Torah has been fulfilled. It served its purpose. It has drawn out the sin of the world and condemned it. This is how we make sense of the Old Testament, by the way. It served its purpose, which is why we are no longer under the law, but it's also why we still have to pay attention to the law because it still teaches us what the best way to live is. The moral guidance of the Torah is still in effect because that is the moral guidance of God. The Torah teaches you how to live in a way that is holy. We're no longer under the law, though, because it's been fulfilled. So Abraham and his family are God's solution, which culminates in Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, who lives a perfectly sinless life, perfectly in accordance with the law of the Torah, and draws sin onto himself so that it can be condemned. 
And now we Christians, who are adopted into Abraham's family, are given the task of implementing God's solution to sin in the world around us. And we do this, we do this by by embodying the life of Christ, by living as Jesus lived, by embodying the love, the grace, the self-sacrifice, the willingness to suffer for others that Jesus lived. This is Paul's theology of election and sanctification and justification all rolled up into one. And it all rests on this very Jewish idea of what it means to be God's elect people. The people God has chosen to carry out his purposes in the world. Now you can see how different this is from the idea of predestination. You can see how different this is from what the Calvinists say. But once you begin understanding this, all of the rest of Paul's writings are going to make a lot more sense. It's much easier to follow along with Paul's sayings when you understand what he's teaching, that we are God's people who have been given the purpose of carrying out his will in the world. Now, all of Paul's other letters are focused on specific problems that that the churches he's writing to are having. And that's actually what makes Romans so special and what makes it such an important book is that it's it's less focused on oh you're having having this specific problem let's walk you through it and much more focused on making sure they understand what God has been doing, making sure they understand what the Jewish people were called for, so that they understand what all God's people, Gentile and Jew alike, are now called to do if they have faith in Jesus. So that they know it's it's not just about ritual for ritual's sake, it's not just about some idea of purity or holiness. It is about carrying out God's purposes in the world. And the way we do that is by living like Jesus as much as we possibly can. By embodying the life of Christ, even if that means willingly going to our deaths. Now, you and I, of course, are not really going to have to deal with that. But nonetheless, we have to wrestle with what does it mean to embody the life of Jesus in our own life now. And you begin to see then that that requires a willingness to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of others. And, and therefore, if you've never at any point in your life suffered or sacrificed for the sake of others, you've got a real problem. Because you have not been living a Christian life. You then begin to understand why it is that... that uh, Jesus never promises his followers an easy life because actually to embody the life of Christ means loving others so deeply that you are willing to suffer and sacrifice for them. It's not, in other words, just about being willing to, uh, to adopt unpopular stances and, and preach unwelcome truths, although that is absolutely a major part of it. It's not just about persecution. It is also about the pain that comes from loving unconditionally. 
and that's the book of Romans. Next week, we'll be into 1 Corinthians. So, keep following along with the Bible reading plans. Keep up with them. Um, it's only a couple of chapters a day at most, so you definitely have the time to do it. Um, the more you read your Bible, the closer to God you become. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that, that reading the Bible is a means of grace. We experience God's grace when we read scriptures, even if you don't always understand what you're reading, even if you're perplexed by it. Just the act of sitting down to read the scriptures consistently will change you in fundamental ways. So keep up with the Bible reading plans, and we'll be back next week with the podcast on 1 Corinthians.